Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. Today we will be discussing Bicycling and the Law by Bob Myonsky, bicycle lawyer, cyclist right advocate, former U.S. Olympic cyclist, and pro cyclist. Attorney Myonsky, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Could you briefly tell us about your background and what led to your interest in bicycle law? You know, I I was uh, always into sports and like a lot of a lot of children growing up, and I eventually landed on skiing, and so I tried to do as much of that as I could, and I was racing for the college team. And I came out to Mount Hood, and I saw that uh, the U.S. team practiced and trained on bicycles, so I thought that would be a good idea, and I got a bike, started riding, and uh, I switched from ski racing to bike racing, and so that's what I did for the my 20s and part of my 30s before I went off to law school. And uh, after law school, I looked around at what kind of work I wanted to do. And I kept getting back to biking. You know, I wanted to ride. I wanted to get involved. Somehow bring together my legal career with my passion and, and the sport that I love. And um, so I started writing columns about bike biking and legal issues for a racing webpage called Velo News. And every time I would get a question posed, I'd have to do a little research. And I was having a hard time finding any kind of go-to resource. And so it, it dawned on me at that point that perhaps uh, someone needs to make a new book. Uh, there had been one written a uh, hundred years earlier and uh, by George B. Clemenson. And um, so that's how I set about putting together this uh, this niche of law. Okay, great. What sorts of cases do you handle as a bike attorney? You know, essentially, I'll, I, I handle all kinds of things, uh, inquiries from people that have legal questions related to the bike. So maybe they got a ticket for not coming to a complete stop or maybe... Uh, unfortunately, they've had a collision with a with a motor vehicle, sometimes with a pedestrian, sometimes another cyclist, or a problem with the road, a defect, um, some kind of injury. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the work has to do with cyclists being injured, but not entirely. Uh, people seek out my services to help them when there are bike bans, when they uh, feel like their rights are being infringed. So it's really anything. You know, cycling touches a lot of different areas because, uh, you know, there's the safety of the rider, but then there are also legal issues. So that pretty much uh, covers that whole area. Great. You uh, briefly already answered this, but you may have more to add about what led you to write this book. Yeah, yeah. So I um, I kept looking and having to look up a lot of these questions uh, from scratch, and I was surprised after 
spending three years in law school and then studying for the bar, there's so many great legal resources, and I couldn't find a compendium of all cycling laws and an understanding of our rights. And so, so that was generally the impetus for putting the book together. At the time, my editor, uh, who's now also an attorney um, and, a, and a politician in Wyoming named Charles Pelkey, he, he made the first suggestion that I consider writing the book. And with his backing, uh, I started putting material together to see what kind of a, a book could be written. Okay. Uh, would you tell us some of the rights and duties of cyclists? Well, first, it's it's been well established through case law that cyclists have a right to the road. And interestingly, motorists don't have a corresponding right to the road. Um, instead, they use the road by permission of the state because you know, driving is regulated through licensing requirements that apply both to the vehicle and to the driver. So um, cycling, on the other hand, has, uh, has its rights based more in common law. But specifically, the rights and duties, in, in a nutshell, um, because we have a right to use the road as cyclists, we have all... All, all the same um, as any other road user. We have all the same rules that face us, and we have all the same rights. So it's essentially the same as a motorist. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the common law. Are there other legal sources of cyclist rights and duties? Yeah, well, of course, there's the common law idea. You know, we've been traveling as humans along different roadways for the millennial, and, um, you know, you pass certain rules, you, you you come to another wagon, you'd each move to your right and pass each other, and it was the same when when uh, people started using bicycles, and so if we look back at some of the very earliest, and this is in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution was underway, and there were new technologies, and um, what happened was that the Someone came up with a with a bicycle as a way to move around with human power, and uh, it, that rage hit the United States as well. And uh, if we look back at the first statute, would it be the New York Law of 1887? It's Chapter 704, and it's named an Act in relation to the use of bicycles and tricycles. And essentially, what that law said in New York was, and what it did was established that cyclists had the same legal rights and duties as persons using a horse-drawn carriage. And that, that's sort of the seed for almost all statutes that and, and case law from that point forward. So I would say that um, we have New York to thank, but soon on, it, on its heels, we can also find some other seminal cases uh, around the country. Um, there's uh, State versus Collins and the Supreme Court of Rhode Island from 1888 that established that the bicycle is a vehicle within the meaning of the law. And a really important case that is often cited came from, uh, it's an earlier case, even predates the New York statutory uh, designation of cycling rights, and that was the Swift versus the city of Topeka. And this has to do with the right to travel. You know the right, the human right to travel, specifically included, including uh, bicycles, and it's a fundamental right of the citizen. 
uh, the case went on to say that that the sole condition being that those who travel by these rights are required to observe the same rules of the road. Could you give some examples of why and how cyclists gained these legal rights? Well, what happened was when, when the first bicycles started to appear on the roads in big numbers, uh, disputes were were had between you know, the same things that happened today, actually. Um, all of a sudden, there were people moving around at a speed that was unheard of, and uh, disputes became inevitable, and if there was a collision, who would be at fault? And it was, wasn't even clear that these bikes had a right to be out on the roadway. So since the bicycles were a new addition, um, the, the solution came through the court system and the legislatures of various states. And, and as I referenced, the New York uh, law, which was one of the first, and uh, some of these case laws, uh, case law, which came through, you know, within that same 10-year period. And, um, you know, a lot of this has to do with the people that were uh, at the forefront of cycling at the time. And um, so there was there was really a movement at the time to establish the right of cyclists to the road uh, via protests and uh, using the court system. What are some things now, nowadays, that commonly cause legal issues for cyclists? Well, one of the things that cyclists face in the modern era is sharing the road with all sorts of other road users. And inevitably, as as happens with motor vehicles, there are collisions and there are injuries. And so one of the main things that uh, causes a legal issue for a cyclist is when they have been involved in a collision and they're injured and they have tort rights against the the negligent party if in fact their injuries were caused by the negligence of another in other words people get crashed you know we don't like to use the word accident but and uh, we use the word crash or collision um some other things that can bring up legal issues for cyclists are uh, interactions with law enforcement officers, uh, the, riding in different formations. You'll notice that people ride side by side. Sometimes they're in large groups, and there are different rules pertaining to the formations that you can ride in, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, uh, the road type. So there's also uh, infractions, just like a person in an automobile. You can get a ticket for speeding. You can get a ticket for riding the wrong way, for not stopping, uh, for failing to uh, obey traffic control devices, failure to yield. So it's it's essentially all the same kinds of issues that a motorist may seek legal uh, counsel for. Could you tell me a little bit about why you don't use the word accident? Sure. The the word accident, um, so if, if two people are operating vehicles, could be two cars, could be a car and a bike, and one of them doesn't check their, let's say, we'll put it on the motorist. So the motorist is driving along and overtakes a cyclist and then decides they want to make a right-hand turn, and they fail to use their turning signal, or more importantly, they fail to yield to the cyclist who has a who has the right of way, and they turn, and the cyclist collides with their vehicle and is injured. When we call this an accident, what we're saying is that it's it couldn't be avoided. It's no one's fault. But 
when we look at the facts that I presented, the motorist could have looked in their mirror. They could have yielded as law required. So it wasn't an accident. It was it was negligence. Accident um, as a as a term is being removed in New York and in many other states. They're called cr- collision uh, reports or uh, crash reports because we want to make the roadway safer for everybody. We have to start with language, and we can't. Uh, we can't uh, label and identify uh, human behavior, which is causing these problems, as an accident. Because an accident is something that no one can predict and no one can anticipate. Whereas we learn that many of the injuries on the, our roadways are caused by people failing to uh, failing to. Use the uh, proper driving techniques and failure to look out. So it's essentially uh, a word that's moving out of our of our language when we describe collisions. And in fact, the media has come a long way in the last ten years, and they're no longer calling these things accidents. I don't. There was a really tragic event last week in Michigan where five cyclists were killed and several more were injured. And a few news outlets used the word accident, and they were called, taken to task for it immediately and then took down that description and called it a collision or a crash. So what are your top three suggestions for riders in 2016? Well, you know, I'd like to back up and say, not back up, but just go to a more fundamental view on that question, and that is if you're a cyclist, uh, you probably have some. You're probably adept at using your bike, but um, you, you may find that you could improve both your enjoyment and your safety if you would increase your bike handling skills. So uh, what happens is people get a level of competence and they feel like they're ready to go on the roadways, and it's sufficient to get them down the way and to their destination and back. But um, my suggestion is one of one of the things that people can do in 2016 is work on their bike handling, practice stopping, practice uh, being able to look backwards behind you while you ride in a straight line. Essentially become more comfortable. It'll increase your pleasure and your safety. So that that's number one on my list. Number two is my suggestion that riders get a mirror. There's a number of reasons why people don't use mirrors on bikes, but uh, I'm an advocate for mirror use. I I can tell you that once you start using a mirror on a bike, you'll find that it is a great tool and that you will never want to ride without a mirror again. So I'm often just yelling into the wilderness on this issue. Mirrors are seen as, in the racing world, mirrors are seen as being a tool of a beginner or a really cautious rider, which is a stigma, which I hope will eventually um, fade away. And the last thing would for 2016 in the way of suggestions is that if you're a rider and you love moving around using your own power, try to invite other people out. See if you can uh, share this love we have for this sport and for this transportation mode and get some other people out riding. You know, I got my grandmother to ride a bike when I was five and she was in her 50s. Uh, there was a bike lying around and I, I came up with a suggestion. I don't know where or why 
and um, she ended up riding bikes until uh, for the rest of her life, and it was a really a great thing for her. And, and I and I think well, there's a lot of people that could be introduced to this way of traveling. It's quite pleasurable. Right. One thing you talk about in your book is uh, bicycle insurance. Do you think that'll be available anytime soon, or will cyclists need to continue to rely on automobile or health insurance policies? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because in the last five years, there's actually been a launch of several bicycle-specific insurance policies that are available to the market, and um, I haven't checked just recently, but I know within a year there were at least three um, companies underwriting insurance policies for cyclists because the problem, as, as you may know, is that to get coverage, insurance coverage, in many cases you have to have an automobile and then you hope to get seek some coverage within the terms of your automobile insurance. Well, not everybody that rides a bike has a car. In fact, many people ride bikes because they don't want to own a car. And so this is good news. And I think that the market's going to continue to change on this issue because I know there's a few, spoke insurance is one of them. Um, and there's a few other, I think Velo Insurance is another company, but some of the major insurance carriers now are marketing and selling bicycle insurance. And the terms are very variable. They could be anything from protecting you, um, you know, for your property damage, for theft, and even for your own liability. Because when you're riding a bicycle, just like a person operating a motor vehicle, if you make a mistake and you cause an injury, you're liable. And uh, homeowners and renters insurance will often cover a cyclist who's out and about and causes an injury. But if you don't have renters insurance and you don't have homeowners insurance, you could be stuck with the responsibility for the injuries that you cause. And although cycles, bicycles are not very heavy vehicles and we don't crush and roll over people, we, it is possible even for a pedestrian to cause an injury to uh, other motor vehicles and other road users. So the the, the short answer is uh, bicycle insurance is here. The longer answer is um, you still, in many cases, will find some coverage on your automobile policy, and it's a good idea to have pretty good limits on your automobile policy, especially on the, on the underinsured and uninsured provisions of your automobile insurance because these are the the clauses that will help you if someone injures you on your bicycle and they don't have insurance or they don't have enough insurance. All right. Thank you for that explanation. Another thing you discuss in your book is the different types of defective product problems. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, it, product liability is, is a, an important tenant of our, our, our legal system and, and people when they're injured by products that were improperly manufactured or uh, in some other way become defective and injure you, it's, it's important that the consumer has some recourse if for no other reason than it puts the manufacturer on notice and uh, it works to inspire them to remedy their problems. That's the 
the good news about product liability. The bad news is these are very difficult cases from from a professional standpoint. Product liability cases are incredibly difficult cases to prosecute. As an attorney, you have to become well-versed in all of the engineering behind the product, and you also carry, as the representative for the injured party, the burden of proving the defect, which means you're going to have to have a team uh, to assert your case, including engineering reports, and of course, uh, the manufacturer will have their engineer, so it becomes a battle of experts. It's all quite complicated and very difficult for the juries, and the whole process is very expensive. So the best thing is, um, you know, to, uh, to to buy safe products and and stay out of trouble. These are typically catastrophic cases. In other words, if I'm I'm riding on a bicycle and it breaks in half and I break my collarbone, I may have a right, I may have a claim against the bike manufacturer or the retailer that sold the bike, but um, you know, the costs and my damages are relatively small. My bone will heal up in my shoulder and my in my clavicle and I'll get back on the bike, but the legal case that was instituted may last five years or longer and cost um, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So as you can see, it wouldn't really make sense for somebody unless they had significant injuries to seek recourse in product liability law. It's nowhere that anybody wants to go. You know, the real solution is that manufacturers make safe products that we can rely on. So it the problem really is is the expense and the difficulty in proving up these kinds of legal cases. Okay. Could you briefly tell us who Albert Pope is? Uh, and if he were alive today, what would you say to him? Well, um, Albert Pope was a, a Union soldier. I think he was an officer from Massachusetts in the late 1800s, and at some point he went to, I believe, a World Fair or something like that, and he saw a bicycle, uh, what would be called an ordinary, which was the one we've seen many pictures of with a large wheel and a small wheel in the back holding up, sometimes they're called penny farthings, because a penny and a farthing, which are two coins in England, if you set them on their end next to each other, they look very much like this bicycle. And Albert Pope had one made and then started importing them. He bought up a lot of patents around, uh, because at this time this is a new invention and there were lots of claims for uh, the, the patent rights to this new invention and different countries had different ways of doing that. So he bought up patents and basically became the main importer of bicycles into the United States and then became a manufacturer of bicycles before he moved on to automobiles. And while he was still making bikes, um, you know, he, he really spread cycling throughout the United States. And he also formed the League of American Wheelmen, or the LAW, which is now still in existence, but now it's called the LAB, League of American Bicyclists, and of which I'm a member. And the, the League of American Bicyclists... Um, is, is one of the best advocacy groups that we have in the United States, but in, you know, over 100, 120, 130 years ago, uh, the League of American Wheelmen, um, along with Albert Pope, uh, 
fought aggressively for uh, the rights, the ones I mentioned earlier, uh, the rights to the road. They, they were integral in getting those first statutes written for paving the first roads in the good road movement. And so I, I guess... I guess Albert Pope could be considered the father of bicycling, even though his, you know, his perspective was more as a, his interests were as a business person. Um, you know, he was an entrepreneur and, and he, he deserves credit for getting, uh, you know, the bikes and the bike movement and the bike heyday started here in the United States. But if I could talk to Albert Pope, I would thank him for his wisdom in establishing our right to the road right from the start. I mean, we had a right to the road before anyone else established by a court of, by both statutes and case law in large part because of his vision of seeing, you know, even if it was uh, selfish because he wanted to sell more bikes, he, you know, he wanted to protect his business interest. I would thank him. It's, uh, made a great career for me and it's allowed me to ride all over the country and in most cases use the roadways which are a part of the commons by the way you'll hear people say that the roads are for cars but in fact the first roads were built for bikes the first paved roads and the road system belongs to all of us and we can use it in all the ways that are legal which means uh, depending on your state you can skateboard ride on a horse um you can uh, ride a bike or drive a motor vehicle or a motorcycle because that strip of land which runs all over the place belongs to all of us. Talking about him having to fight to establish rights, do you have any suggestions for reaching out to people who are biased against cyclists? Well, I do. Um, it's, a, it's a big challenge because if you don't ride a bike, then you you probably... Uh, see them as, see us as something different than you. Um, you know, especially depending on the kind of riders, people wear different outfits and they conduct themselves and travel. There's some differences about the way we have to use the roads than you do as a motor vehicle. And so these are all things that, you know, um, pigeonhole us as something different, something unusual, even though we've been here longer. Um, and even though the movement, cycling movement, is continuing to grow, so one of the things that I think is helpful is for people that are are avid cyclists to talk to their friends, which is probably easy, but also their family, which isn't always as easy, and maybe their coworkers, and let them know what the challenges are that they face when they're riding their bike. In other words, humanize cyclists. In fact, I've seen movements that are fairly effective where they, they have on the back of their jersey things like, you know, father, son, daughter. In other words, I'm a human. I'm on a bike. I'm not ensconced in a metal cage with airbags and straps um, and beverage holders and stereos. I'm out on a vehicle uh, that I have to balance and then I have to power with my my own efforts. So otherwise I'm still a human. And so that that's one thing that I think that can really help. Another thing that can be helpful is if motorists understand that when they see people riding a bike, especially when they're commuting by bike, that they're not in their automobile. They're not in a motor vehicle. They're not in the queue. They're not clogging up the roads. You might get frustrated being caught behind a cyclist for 
five seconds. And literally, many of the encounters we have are that short. People just have this illusion that they're going to never get where they're going. They're in a mad rush to get around you. And then when they get caught at the light, you pass them back. So they've gained nothing by making a dangerous pass and getting themselves all worked up. So some of the antagonism is illusory, um, the, the sense that the cyclists are taking something away from them, you know, either in the way of bike lanes or, um, you know, blocking the road, getting in the way of their road, because as I mentioned, it isn't their road. It's all of our road. It's the commons. And um, they should also remember that bicycles aren't putting out emissions and polluting. They're allowing people to use their body and be healthy, which which takes a burden off the healthcare system, which is a benefit to all of us. And, um, you know, it's, it's making the air cleaner. And it also makes streets, villages, and towns more livable. It's It's been shown that when people can ride their bikes in cities and towns, that it's good for commerce. It helps businesses. It makes it more livable. In other words, it's a good thing for everybody. So basically, they just uh, motorists need to just relax and maybe try riding themselves. Um, and I think another important thing that one uh, put a fine point on it is that Motorists should remember that when they see a cyclist, um, it's just a person on a bike, just like they're a person in a car. And that person could be their boss's son or daughter, or it could be their employee's fiance, or it could be their softball coach's niece. In other words, it could be just like someone that they care and love. And so when they keep this in mind, they'll pass and, 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 you know, obey their their right of way and um you know treat treat us a little better when they when they can remember that we're humans just like they are all right those are all great suggestions thank you what sorts of things do you do beyond your law practice to promote the rights of cyclists well i i i I think one of the things i do is um I get people to ride bikes. I explain to people now why is it, how does that, how does that promote the rights of cyclists? We know that the more people that ride, the safer the roads are. The more people that ride, the more that we, we become a familiar sight and that makes it safer for everyone, which really, I think, runs to the rights of all cyclists. But in my personal life, I, I uh, sponsor rides. I'm a part of the Bike Law Network, which is an advocacy group around the country of bike attorneys. Um, I do different events on my own. Uh, I did the Naked Bike Ride here in Portland a year ago with 10,000 or maybe even 15,000 other people on an unusually warm evening in June in Portland. It was still in the 90s at night, so that was really fun. And that event happens in two weeks. I don't know that I'll ever do it again, but it's certainly fun to watch. I know they have them all over the world now. Um, yeah, so I mainly uh, I sponsor racing teams, which in in turn also give back to the advocacy movements. I volunteer and support the League of American Bicyclists and the Bicycle Transportation Alliance here in Portland, Oregon. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. 